Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Transplant's Take on Sport. My name's Lewis Daniels and my guest today is Queen of Dialysis, Maddie Warren. Maddie explains how she's maintained fitness and a positive mental attitude throughout 22 years of dialysis and an unsuccessful kidney transplant, as well as discussing her 500 skydives and running the London Marathon in 2018. I realise this episode is slightly longer than usual, but I didn't want to cut out any parts of Maddie's stories, it's such an inspirational one, so please listen all the way through to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and if you're enjoying the podcast, why not subscribe or follow wherever you normally listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you'd like to follow the podcast on social media, all the links will be in the show notes. Maddie Warren, welcome to Transmart's Take on Sport. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Lewis. Really pleased to have you on. For the listeners, it's going to be a bit of a different one today. We've had a few a few different takes on Transmart, a few different takes on sport. Uh, Maddie, your Twitter, you are queen of dialysis, which I think <laughs> quite rightly considering everything you've been through, you've been on dialysis for 22 years. That's right. Yeah. It's, uh, I celebrated 21 again. I know everybody wants to get to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're going to cover all that today, uh, dialysis, types of dialysis and how you've come through it all and you're still keeping active, keeping positive. So we'll go right back to the start to begin with. When did you first find out that you had kidney problems? So I um, was completely healthy, had no problems at all um, until I turned 13. And I was at school just kind of doing what a young teenager does and started to get some strange symptoms, um, including kind of waking up with puffy eyes and having swollen ankles in the evenings and feeling just really tired and not energised. Um, and I think lots of people who have kidney problems know that those are quite classic symptoms that something's not right. Um, and but nothing specific. And, you know, I was I was kind of OK. Luckily, my dad is actually a doctor. Um, he was he was a GP. He's retired now. And he he kind of felt that that was so unusual for me that we should really get me checked out. So I had some blood tests and urine tests done at the GP and they came back quite 
all over the place, shall we say. So in particular, I had a lot of protein in my urine and very, very low protein levels in my blood. So they referred me very, very quickly to um, the paediatric um, kidney unit at Guy's Hospital, who happened to be just down the road from my parents' house. And they're an amazing world leading kidney unit. So I was lucky to be so nearby um, to them as it as it turned out. Um, and they ran various tests. And they also did a biopsy, which is um, where they go and take in a tiny little piece of the kidney to have a look under a microscope to see what's going on at a cellular level. And I was diagnosed with a condition called I'm going to spell it out. I'm going to say the whole thing. It's focal segmental <laughs> glomerulose sclerosis, I think, also known as FSGS, um, which causes a, a condition called nephrotic syndrome. So essentially, my it, my immune system, for whatever reason, had suddenly started to attack my kidneys, essentially, and stop recognizing them as being a part of my body. Um, and as an autoimmune condition, um, it needed treating, obviously, because the effect on my kidneys were quite significant, even at that early stage, and it progressed quite rapidly. So I was getting more and more swollen, starting to feel very unwell. I was leaking huge amounts of protein out in my urine. Um, and I, I guess to cut a long story short, there was a, a very, very challenging nearly two years um, where the condition ran out of control pretty fast. Um, they tried lots of different treatments, like high doses of steroids. We tried chemotherapy tried drugs to suppress my immune system and stop the you know the overreaction um but sadly I have a very aggressive form of the condition and none of those treatments worked and some of them actually made me very unwell because I guess a lot of us know that the side effects of our treatment can almost be sometimes worse than the condition itself um and during that time you know because I was retaining so much fluid all the time from from losing all these important proteins that would normally hold that fluid in my body in the right places I was so swollen up that by the time we got to the point where my kidneys were damaged beyond repair um, and they actually removed my kidneys and put me onto dialysis, they took off 15 litres, which is 15 kilograms of fluid that I had retained in the kind of preceding few months and of being very unwell. So you can imagine I started looking, I went in looking like a massive puffer fish and came out looking like a stick insect. Um, so <laughs> It's a lot of fluid. Uh, oh, honestly, I mean, I knew I had two. Well, well, yeah, <laughs> two <laughs> yeah, liters, and that's enough. That's horrible to be retaining a couple of liters. Yeah, so so that was obviously very dangerous as well. So I mean, the point where we decided enough was enough, and my kidneys were removed because to stop that autoimmune system kind of condition happening, we had to actually take my kidneys out. Um, and so dialysis, I know that was the only option to then keep me alive. Obviously, um, once my kidneys had, had pretty much failed, but actually. Um, I always viewed dialysis as being a thing that really saved me because my, I had such a dreadful couple of years and the decline to kidney failure was just awful. I had a couple of very difficult life-threatening situations because of complications from the condition. Um, and, and by that point, I was desperate for something to change and for life to become a bit more predictable again. And dialysis actually gave me that. So I started with a very positive outlook towards it, that this is going to be better and this is going to be different from how things have been. That sounds like the key, the positivity through it all. Do you mind if you, we elaborate on the, the complications, the life-threatening mm -hmm. complications, see where, just so people are aware, really? Mm. Yeah, so, um, I mean, kidney kidney damage and kidney failure and kidney disease can be caused by lots and lots of different factors. So some people, it's genetic, some people are born with damaged kidneys, some people develop a condition like I did um, all of a sudden. Sadly, also, one of the largest causes of, of kidney failure or kidney damage is diabetes. And we know that that's one of the reasons why the numbers are increasing as well. 
Um, but but for me, the, the reason why I ended up with lots of complications was primarily because um, when when the condition attacked my kidneys, it caused inflammation and scarring within the kidney cells, within the filtration cells. And so then they started leaking out lots of really important things that my body really needed to keep inside and not leak out in my urine. Um, and then that that meant that because all this fluid was moving in the wrong places and it was leaking out of my blood supply, sitting in my tissues, it was putting a huge amount of pressure on my heart. So my blood pressure would be really shooting up very high. I was getting fluid on my lungs, which affected my breathing. I was having to have very regular and increasingly regular infusions of essentially a pure protein called albumin, which attempted to draw the fluid back out of all the places where it shouldn't be and put it back into my blood supply and then I could pee it out which used to be very effective for a couple of days so I would have an infusion of albumin I would then pee out so much fluid you couldn't even I mean it was ridiculous but then a few days later I'd have lost all that protein again and so it was this very difficult cycle and then um, as things got worse and uh, the fluid sitting in the wrong places so the most serious complication I had was it actually caused my bowel to collapse and kind of fold in on itself because it was just so compressed, um, which was obviously an obstruction, which was the most agonizing pain I could possibly even begin to think of. And I was rushed into hospital and they had no idea what was going on apart from this pain. And, and my blood pressure was shooting up sky high and dropping up low. And I was essentially going into shock and they couldn't work out the problem. And I thank my lucky stars that in the end, they just took me to theatre and did surgery to see what was going on. And the most incredible surgeon who I'll never forget, she she did the surgery and she told me afterwards that she essentially untwisted my bowel in her hand and watched it kind of perfuse back with blood. And if we'd waited much longer, I would have lost that whole section of bowel and that would have been pretty catastrophic. So um, that was a lucky one. And, you know, for weeks after that, I wasn't allowed to have anything by mouth. And I was in hospital kind of being intensively nursed for a few days. So um, we got to the point where we realised these sorts of complications couldn't really be allowed to, to carry on and things were getting more and more out of control. Um, although I just feel I do feel all the way through I have had some very lucky moments. And, and I know there's been some fantastic decision making by the medical team to do things at the right moment and not hang around and not, you know, not mess about. And thank goodness, because possibly I wouldn't even actually be here to tell the tale. Um, so yeah, the complications were, were not, not nice. Um, it was a difficult couple of years. I lost all my hair from the chemotherapy treatment, which didn't work. So I lost all my hair for no reason. As far as I was concerned, as a young teenager, that was quite difficult going to school and having to sort of wear a hat or, or just have no hair. Um, and the steroids, as many people know, can give you real sort of body image issues and make you swell up in your face and very hungry. So then you gain weight. So kind of all that all that stuff was going on uh, in a very intense period until the point where I, I went into full kidney failure and started dialyzing. How do you take all those things going on, all those complications and side effects and treatment not working? How do you take that being so young at the time? And how do you pick yourself back up from it not working? That's a really good question. Um, also, it's quite interesting looking back now as an adult with an adult perspective on life to when you're a child and you don't know as much, I guess. So I think firstly, when you're that young, you don't think about the, the big picture long term prognosis in a way. So your anxieties may be different or less. It depends on you know the situation. I was very, very focused on the here and now all the time. And you know, everybody tells us you know, stay in the present. And, and that's the, you know, the concepts behind things like mindfulness and stuff is all about that. And as a child, I think you're much more naturally able to be like that. 
Um, and I was only ever focused on get me out of this hospital. I want to go back to school. I want to be with my friends. I was very academic. I wanted to be doing my exams. And, you know, at 13, 14, you're starting your GCSEs. I was desperate to get the exam grades I wanted because I was dead set on getting a place at Cambridge University. I was passionate about music and sport and having fun. I was just a really active kind of just forward driven teenager. And so all of that was absolutely my priority to get out of the hospital. But I also would say that my parents and the medical team played an amazing role in normalizing everything so they my parents and I have two younger brothers as well and never did they try and overprotect me or stop me trying to do things they encouraged me constantly to still try and achieve the things and, and get back to school or you know get back doing things with my friends even you know they'd help me kind of get out of hospital as quickly as possible after I'd had my treatment um and the hospital team at guys the pediatric team were the same all the kids in their care all they were ever focused on was their life outside the hospital and everything they did was geared towards getting people home. So I was almost taught how to be positive and normalise my condition. And I guess I was innately always quite a positive, upbeat person anyway, which helped. Um, and, and I felt like I was always, especially towards kind of starting on dialysis and things, I was in as much control as was feasibly possible in the moment and control is so important to all of us and that tiny bit of control given back to you when everything is going wrong and you cannot even trust your own body to behave is really powerful and um whether that's doing your own dialysis or it's getting to grips with looking after yourself after a transplant or giving you know whatever your situation every little bit of power that you can take back is really important and I guess I, I learned that over over the years um but again I yeah the family support and the support of a really great healthcare team was absolutely fundamental. Did your friends at school understand what was going on and and know the ins and outs of your condition and your illness or treatment? I think possibly at the time they didn't know the ins and outs and I certainly don't know if they realised how serious it was. But then probably I didn't maybe even realise always how serious it was. Um, which is possibly sublime ignorance at certain points, which I don't <laughs> mind I actually don't mind. Um I think I, I, I had a very close knit group of friends who I already, you know, I already had when I when this all suddenly started. Um, and I, I was at a very supportive school who were very good at kind of communicating to my classmates, you know, why I was off so much and, and what was going on and not oversharing, but keeping them in the loop and also keeping me up to date with, you know, sending me schoolwork and um, a couple of lovely teachers actually came to visit me in hospital or would bring work in and sort of chat to me about what was going on. Um, so I did feel, I, I mean, I hated being out of school and I felt quite excluded when it came to social stuff because oftentimes all I could really keep up with was just the schoolwork at that point in time and, and anything else just wasn't possible. Um, I can fully understand that. Yeah. With the, my, my illness starting at university and the tiredness that comes with it when your kidneys are at that level of not working, it is hard to keep the social side and the academic side going. And, as you'd imagine, the academic side has to take priority with what you want to do. Absolutely. Although I think now looking back as an adult and I made lots of decisions since then and, you know, life's gone in uh, lots of amazing directions. But um, I think that especially if you're naturally quite hard on yourself in terms of academia and you want to do well and you're very driven to achieve, that is fantastic. But it also it is important to allow yourself a bit of balance. And so, you know, if I could go back and do certain things again, I maybe would have said, 
I am going to focus academically, of course, but occasionally, if I have a bit of energy, I'm going to go and have fun with my friends. I agree. Because that balance, it's so important to keep your mental health and positivity, and that comes from seeing your friends and having fun. Um, but yeah, so you get you get it. At the time, it was sort of pour myself into trying to get you know get to my GCSEs initially. Um, but my friends were wonderful, and I, I have a collections of cards still. You know, my whole class got together and made things for me and wrote me lovely messages and did their best. And this was pre mobile phones, pre social media. We didn't have that ease of communication that we do now. But on the flip side, I'm quite glad because. I think if I'd have been looking at Instagram and Facebook and seeing everyone having a great time, I'd have felt awful. And frankly, I didn't really know a lot of the time what was going on. Um, and that was probably quite helpful too. <laughs> As you, you don't know what you're missing out on or if you are missing out on anything at all. Well, yeah, I mean, you always think you're missing out on more than you probably are. But, you know, we had landlines. So and also, you know, occasionally we would have a Friday night gathering in my room in the hospital and a couple of friends would come in and we'd get a takeaway and sit and watch a film in my room. And, you know, so they did try to bring the fun to me as well. Um, And I think, you know, I found out very young that it's important to know who your real friends are. Yeah. And they're the ones who stick by you when things get really hard. Um, and you know your acquaintances are the people who are you know great fun nice to have around but probably cannot be relied on if life isn't easy and that was a great lesson to learn at quite a young age yeah so important to have that good group around you who understand what you maybe can and can't do maybe not can't do but your limitations how the condition affects you Mm -hmm. yeah and and sort of for me anyway it, it's all I use humor an awful lot like I'm quite irreverent in the way I think about it all and talk about it and you know much much more recently I've developed and fantastic friendships really strong friendships in our kidney community as well I have wonderful friends who have transplants have kidney disease or on dialysis whereas when I was a lot younger I was a little bit in denial about being part of that community and I actually didn't want to go meet other patients plus also like most of us who are younger it was hard to find other young patients anyway but I was very anti that and I sort of I think I was just in denial that there was anything wrong with me really which is a bit daft um so I was much more focused on I've got to stay with all the normal kind of everything that my normal things that my friends are doing and go out and about and just don't let this stop me in any way um which most of the time is a really great way to be because you push really hard for that normality. Occasionally, you know, you might push a little bit too hard, but I don't know. I think sometimes you need to do that because you find where your boundaries are and you find what you can tolerate or <laughs> what you can cope with. And then you sort of move back a little bit from there sometimes. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned humor because when I go to the hospital appointments and my mum would come over to where I was at university and we'd go together beforehand, it was very, we were very much joking around. Humor is. Do I say coping mechanism, defense mechanism, possibly, um, and just these throwaway comments making light of the whole situation? But then you, the reality and the seriousness sets in once you have the appointment, and afterwards it's very reflective, mm. a bit, a bit somber. Yeah, I mean, I suppose. That's the bit that other people will never understand. And, and that is why I think that more recently, that empathy of, of people who have a similar situation is really important because you can't put it into words and you can't always voice decisions you're having to make, situations you're just having to live with because you can't change it. Um, and, and, you know, the bigger things like facing mortality or knowing, you know, what the future may hold and not particularly liking the look of it. You need the people who get that 
but you also need them because they can literally laugh about it with you and say okay it's awful but we're going to laugh rather than cry because crying will actually change the situation (laughs) but they know when you do need you know they know when you might need a hug or you might need a little bit of a kick um but yeah for me humor is a massive part of it and a lot of it I just I just look at life and I think my goodness I didn't expect it to turn out this way in the the best way and the worst way but kind of all at the same time yeah well let's let's move on to you've got your your diagnosis you tried the treatments you then started dialysis what was the thinking behind the type of dialysis that yourself and the medical team chose for you to do so um the as I mentioned before, the team at the hospital and, and my parents and I were very focused on what was the way that I could get as much normality back as possible. So being at home, away from the hospital, back in full time school, having you know time to do the fun stuff. Um, and so in a way, from that point of view, peritoneal dialysis, PD, um, was absolutely the first kind of decision and I think in in pediatrics PD is much more widely used anyway I I, I'm often quite surprised that adult patients don't always get encouraged to consider PD as much Um, and I know it doesn't work for everybody but for those it does work for I think it's great Um, and and PD the advantages are it's it's very simple to learn you do it at home you can you can do it through the day but I was doing it I chose to do it overnight on the APD machine which meant I was um, hooked up to it every single night of the week for eight hours, which sounds a lot, especially now when I work a lot of hours and I don't really have eight hours to spare at night. But um, as a as a young person who was at school and things, that was doable. Um, and the great thing was I could then come off it in the morning, disconnect myself, go to school, forget about it, do whatever I wanted, and then come back in the evening and set it up and go to bed. And PD is also portable. So on the weekends, I could take it to my friends' houses. I could go to the sleepovers that I was missing out on, you know. And when I when I was older and I had a boyfriend, I could take it to his house. So it 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 was it was a no brainer to be honest. But what was amazing was that the team, again in pediatrics, they dedicated so much time to talking us and my family and I through all the options including hemodialysis, PD, and, and talking about how they might fit into my life. So it was it was a real different scenario to what I know a lot of people experience where they don't get that much information and they're feeling like they have to make decisions without really knowing what they're choosing between. Um, and so, I mean, the only thing around PD, which I obviously felt a little bit unsure about, was having the PD tube permanently into my stomach. Yeah. Um, again, as a teenager, the thought of having a permanent great big tube sticking out of you and being filled up with fluid all the time which makes your belly kind of turn into what I used to call it my pot belly um (laughs) was a little bit disconcerting but again I think after everything I'd been through to be honest that was like a small price to pay to get that normality back um and it was wonderful I mean PD gave me an absolutely normal life and, and for the five years that I was on it I did my exams I did my GCSEs I did my A levels I took it away on holiday um I you know I was back you know doing everything at school playing sport that kind of thing and um the only reason I I moved on from it and I'm sure we'll cover this is it doesn't last forever PD stopped working eventually um and it did for me but I got a great five years from it and no infections no complications it was fantastic one of the positive stories and hopefully if anybody is considering dialysis I know when I was leading up to my transplant my kidneys had failed my first choice was PD if I had to Mm -hmm. do it thankfully I didn't have to do it but my main reason for that was I didn't want a fistula. Yeah. I didn't okay. want that operation or the the bumps that come with it or potentially come with it. Again, I'm 
far from an expert on dialysis from not going through it, but that was a big thing for me. I can talk about fistulas later if you want when we get to it because you're, we'll you're, it. you're right, that is a big consideration for some people, but there's also quite a lot of information out there that can be not misleading, but people fear fistulas, in my view, more than they need to, but that's because what they get told and what they see. So, yeah, we could come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move forward then. People who are listening and who've listened to all the other podcasts before are probably thinking, ah, kidneys failed, went on to dialysis, we know what happens next. <laughs> What hap- What they thought happened next did happen next. You, Your kidney failure was attempted to be treated with a transplant. Mm-hmm. But how did that go? So the challenge with my particular condition uh, is that it is something in my immune system and it is not well understood yet. Or, well, it's getting better, better and better, the understanding of FSGS. And there's active research going on at the moment, which is really exciting and positive there's an amazing team at bristol who are doing loads of research and since since my first diagnosis so that would have been you know 23 years ago we know a lot more about it than we did but what we still don't have yet is a sort of an actual really treatment or a cure to sort of switch it off and stop it attacking kidneys um we uh, but we still do have a range of treatments that we can try the problem was i'd had most of those already um, in my initial diagnosis and none of them had worked. So we knew that my FSGS was very resistant to to treatment and it never had gone into remission at all. Um, and so my dad was lined up to be a live kidney donor for me because obviously, we, you know, transplantation, especially for young people, still is, you know, something that you really would consider. And actually now, and again, I can talk about this in a bit, I have such an amazing life on dialysis. I would really think a long, long, long time before even thinking about going for a transplant. But then um, it was absolutely the next step. And we actually waited because we knew the risk of my FSGS recurring was as high as up to 70 or 80 percent. So it was really quite crazy odds. Um, I decided because we knew how bad it had been the first time around to wait till I finished school because I wanted to get my exams because that was my kind of route to university. So I did my A-levels and I got my place at Cambridge, but I deferred it by a year. And the plan was to have my transplant from my dad in that gap year and then to have my recovery uh, and then go off to university and live happily ever after. (laughs) But I was so, I was so, um, I laugh now when I look back because of how it all went, but I was so focused on the fact that it was all going to be fine, that I had planned a very complicated trip around Australia for the second half of my gap year. So I was fully intending to give myself six months of recovery and then go off around Australia on a gap year trip, which I'd gone as far as booking the itinerary for buying plane tickets, the lot. Um, I think that's just blind faith at this point. <laughs> but anyway, um, so the so my dad was lined up. He was a great match. I, I did have reservations because we knew the risk was so high about whether I really should be taking my dad's kidney and you know putting it into that risk but as I'm sure you know and many people who are parents there's no way a parent wouldn't donate to their child so my dad was saying no absolutely we're going to go ahead and do this um so we had the transplant um which went fine in terms of the surgery but very sadly within 12 hours of the surgery my FSGS had come back which was then you know we, we worked it out through a biopsy a few days later because the kidney never woke up so it never started working um and it wasn't because it was rejection it was because of this immune attack had come straight back um and so sadly you know that was an immediate uh, worst case has happened it's come back the only new treatment that was available 
um, then, which hadn't been tried previously, was plasma exchange or plasmapheresis, which is quite common now and is used loads. At the time, so we're back in 2003, it was still really quite new and hadn't been widely used, but was 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 thought to be sometimes effective at, at reducing that immune reaction. Um, and I'm always reticent. I don't want to kind of scare anybody because I know a lot of people do go through plasma exchange and it's absolutely fine and it's a very good treatment now and works for a lot of people. I didn't have a great experience of it, but I think that was a real combination of lots of different things that were going on at the time. And the worst, most difficult thing of all was that... Um, because of what was going on in my body, my clotting, my blood clotting factors had essentially dropped off. And so my blood really wasn't clotting well at all. And I was having plasma exchange three times a week and dialysis because the kidney wasn't working. And I was very unwell. Um, and then I, I developed basically uncontrollable bleeding from the kidney during that time. And um, I would say that was my second brush with Oh, brush with death in terms of the way that I don't ever want to be lying in a hospital bed with all these doctors standing around me looking really panicked and being rushed off to emergency like um to radiology for like emergency blood clotting procedures I I will say that was probably the most traumatic of the whole thing um however ultimately you know the kidney very sadly didn't work um that I pulled through which I think at that point was the main thing was that I'd made it I, I'd, I'd got there so far and so yeah. we made a decision after three months that we needed to take the kidney out um and and that was the end of the transplant attempt um it probably did take me the, a good year to really recover from that I had been so desperately unwell and um because during that time I wasn't doing PD immediately after the transplant surgery obviously um, they they had already put a, a neckline in, so I was doing hemodialysis in the hospital just whilst I went through my recovery. But also, my PD had been getting less effective anyway in the preceding months, and so we made the decision that it was time to switch over to hemodialysis as well. And that would be my long term dialysis plan since the transplant obviously hadn't gone well. And and the decision which we made mutually, and I have not yet changed my mind on it, is that we will not attempt another transplant unless there is a significant development in treatment of FSGS, because it's not worth the risk to my life. And I have a lot to throw away right now, because my quality of life is so good on dialysis. I (laughs) I don't want to try that again. I didn't want to break your flow there and interrupt, but just going back a bit, you said that the FSGS came back in 12 hours. That, to me, who's not an FSGS patient. That sounds quick. Is that really fast for it to come back? Uh, yes and no. So, so some people, lots of people, in fact, with FSGS can be transplanted successfully and it never comes back, or it might come back several years down the line, but be treatable with various treatments that are out there. Um, there are others for whom, you know, within twelve to twenty-four hours, it is back. And I mean, you, you, it's hard because. The reasons, the reasons how you tell if you've got active FSGS and it's attacking your kidneys when they're working is that you start leaking lots of protein out in your urine. So you can dipstick the urine and see there's loads of protein and you could do a blood test and see that, you know, it's low in your blood. Obviously, because the kidney was never worked, it wasn't producing urine in order to be able to dipstick it in the first place. So um, within a day or two, they did a biopsy, which tells you at a cellular level, they could see what was going on. Um, so yes it's fast but it's it's feasible to be that fast equally it, it, it might not come back ever at all or it might come back mildly and then respond to, to treatment you know and that can be dealt with and some people have I think now some people who have FSGS but um have you know regular infusions a couple of times a year of the drug that's now used to keep it under control as well so there's a lot more options now 
So, you know, if if I ever thought, you know what, I'll give it one more go with a transplant and it came back again, there are new things we could try this time. Um, but I'm sort of parking that option for the time. Really. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not in a hurry. For those who aren't aware, could you explain what uh, a plasma exchange is, please? Yes. So plasma, um, so your blood is made up of lots of different cells and different parts and plasma is the kind of clear liquidy part of your blood and it carries lots and lots of different things including hormones um, lots of chemicals and then your blood's red because you've got red blood cells that um, carry your iron sorry that carry your oxygen around and, and that and combine with iron and that's what uh, transports oxygen around your body so the theory behind plasma exchange for FSGS specifically is that we know that the, th- the factor that causes FSGS is probably in the plasma um, and the imi- you know it's part of the immune system. And so you can if you go on plasma exchange, which looks a little bit like a hemodialysis machine. So you're cu- hooked up to the machine and your blood's taken out and put through a special sort of, I say filter. But I think it's more of like a not a centrifuge. I don't really know what it does inside the machine, but it essentially extracts all of your own plasma and then puts donated plasma back from a donor um, and the theory being if this factor is in your plasma they can remove it and then put fresh plasma back which doesn't contain it right for some people that does work really well unfortunately for me my body just kept making more of whatever this thing is that causes the problem so yeah for me it didn't work um, but it is a re- it has been a revolution in terms of treatment for, for this kind of condition and um, also for lots of other things like helping to remove antibodies before transplant to help improve transplant match that sort of thing so it's a remarkable treatment um, I just happen to be unlucky with that one. It's interesting to know because I, I was very unaware of the plasma exchange treatment mm-hmm. and what that that does so I've already learned something. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> How do you stay positive and deal with all these setbacks in your illness throughout um this is hard because i i my positivity is genuine and i know that people get very fed up of people going you just got to stay positive and you know positivity will get you everywhere and, and I, I you know i think that's really cheesy to say things like that however my i i am my positivity is quite innate i i generally tend to quite easily see the upside of stuff um, and I do have quite a remarkable belief that things will always turn out fine. Um, I don't know where that comes from. I mean, <laughs> I've, <laughs> they've turned out quite badly quite a few times, especially way back, although much more recently, touch wood, you know, I've had far less of the kind of catastrophic, crazy situations, which is nice. But um, I, I just, I suppose I also, I mean, I'm not, I'm not religious in any way, but I am, I sort of have a belief that, the, the things that are going to happen are kind of going to happen. And so trying to control them or um, be begrudge what goes on with your life or think, you know, I don't deserve this. I wish it was different. I don't see the point because it's not going to change the situation. Um, and I know that my positivity also stems from having amazing people around me. And I, and I, I value that network, both family and friends, colleagues, you know, the, the, the healthcare team at the hospital, everybody. Um, helps me to stay kind of strong um, and, and you know laughter humor all those things that we've talked about already I sometimes think if you force yourself to laugh at something you find suddenly that actually it's it's kind of okay and yeah. it isn't as bad but I also would say more than anything whatever your life situation is and, and you know we know that our health especially long-term kind of chronic conditions affect everything it can affect your your career your family your relationships you know having kids maybe being able to pursue your dreams um 
I'm a big fan of whatever it is you actually want to go and do or the thing that you love, make it happen and, and, you know, put that thing above a lot of other stuff. So there's an awful lot of drag, like things in life that drag you down or quite mundane things or stuff that we sort of society expects us to do. But we don't necessarily really want to be doing those things. And I've learned that you need to put your put the joy first. And it doesn't matter what it is. It might be it might be arts and crafts, it might be gardening, it might be hanging out with your friends, it might be watching Netflix, it might be, you know, going running, playing sport, travel. And we know that some of those things are harder to do, but just find try everything to try and do it. Because just even embedding some of that joy back in your life gives you a lot to hold on to when things get tough. I, I completely agree with you, everything you said there. And I said this to Scott on the podcast last time. Uh, I think that I said I worried a lot during my, I still do, not as much as I did, but I still do worry about my illness and my transplant and everything that might happen in the future. But I said to him last week that if I hadn't worried, everything that happened, I think still would have happened. Yeah, most likely. <laughs> so. <laughs> It's totally natural, though. And I think also, I mean, you, you did you say your transplant was 18 months ago, right? Uh, just over, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I think this is, um, it's an ever-evolving ever scenario as well. You know, time is amazing. And, and I consider 18 months to be quite recent still in the scale of what you've gone through, certainly, and, you know, this big life-changing event that happens to us all and the, you know, and as you get further away from the, the event and hopefully things get stable and you can start to focus on other things like, you know, going back to university or your job or family life. Um, the worry hopefully should ease, but I would say that is not, you know, I know for a lot of people it doesn't and anxiety, stress, mental health symptoms are a massive part of our condition and frankly not talked about enough, I think, and often quite overlooked in terms of providing the right support for people too. Um, I think nearly everybody at some point probably would benefit from going and having a chat with somebody whether that's a counsellor or a psychologist um, because we are dealing with things that most human beings should never have to deal with and we know it won't go away so we have to adapt how we feel about it and we have to adapt our behaviour to learn to cope and that's really tough but if you can manage to do that you can move yourself into a kind of another plane I guess Um, and certainly for me and I have been dialyzing for so long. I mean, I, I'm 22 years dialyzing and I'm 37. So far more years that I have than I haven't now. And it has become so second nature. It's just automatic. And, you know, like most people on dialysis, I find the ways to make it work for me as well. You know, I don't follow every rule and everything that I was told when I was trained at all. Not that I'm recommending that to anybody. Always, <laughs> always follow medical advice. But, you know, you adapt and you learn what works for you. And, and actually what I always say to people is find a way to put your life first, um, whether that's when you're transplanted or on dialysis, because otherwise what's the point of any of it? You know, we're, we're being kept alive by these amazing donated organs or by these incredible machines. But if you spend that whole life stressing about the situation and wondering what terrible thing is going to happen next, there isn't much point in putting all that effort in in the first place to look up, you know, to get that life back. Um so that you know that's how I see it and everyone will be at a different point in that discovery of how they're going to cope with it and embed it into their life yeah before we move on to your change of dialysis staying on the pd theme I tweeted out from the transport take on sport podcast account uh, facebook instagram as well asking for questions for you and we had quite a few (laughs) 
So sticking on the PD theme, they're going to be dotted around throughout the rest of the podcast. We have one on Twitter from at Crayon Money. It says, hey, Maddie, I'd be interested to know if you used to be on PD and if you managed to do much running if and when you were in, if and when you were on it. We're going to come on fully onto the sport later, but I thought it fits in well now with the PD theme. Yes. And it's a great question um, because PD, for those who haven't done it or are, you know, know about it um you have the tube in your stomach or in your abdomen it actually goes into the the cavity in your peritoneal cavity which is the space that all your organs in your abdomen sit in and it fills that space up with a lot of fluid and you know anything up to two liters of fluid potentially or more um, and that fluid sits there for a while and it draws toxins and fluids out of your blood supply via the peritoneal membrane and then drains them away with the fluid. And that's how you do your dialysis. So when you're filled, it's called a dwell. So when the fluid is sitting there, um, you are carrying around like for me, it was the pot belly. It was at least two to two and a half liters just sat there. So if you jump up and down, it would slosh and wasn't particularly comfortable, although <laughs> it was fine. And you do get used to it. I'm making it sound awful. I used to sleep all night with it going in and out all night. It was absolutely fine. Um, but yes, what I would say to anyone exercising generally on PD, um, especially if it's exercise that um, raises your intra-abdominal pressure quite a lot, which like jumping, running, quite, you know, lively movement can do. It is probably a lot easier to do it with an empty, uh, so with it drained all the fluid out and then go do your exercise. And then you can always put fluid back in later. Some people do have fluid in during the day as well. Others don't. It depends on your prescription and how you do your PD. Um, but and interestingly, I am currently working with a, a, the Global Renal Exercise Forum, who are a it's a it's a global gathering of, of clinicians and researchers all around the world who are interested in advising and developing exercise advice for kidney patients because we know it's so overlooked often. And they are working on specific guidelines for for PD at the moment. So hopefully those will get published in due course. And they go into lots of specifics about this kind of thing. But what I would say is from a running point of view I wasn't running as in just going out for a run I was at school still when I was in PD so I was playing hockey netball um I was a very keen horse rider which is the thing I was most wanting to actually get back to after I'd been ill for a couple of years and not able to ride horses that was the first thing I did was went and got back on a horse on PD and it was totally fine um and I was skiing as well and I always loved dance so I was you know quite active mobile flexible sort of sports um and I always did the exercise without the PD fluid in that's probably my biggest tip the other thing I would say because PD constantly stretches your core muscles out because you're filling up with fluid all the time is um gently but consistently work on your core strength so to try and counteract some of that maybe weakness that the PD can create so for me um pilates is is a, i'm still obsessed with pilates now but it was the most amazing way to rebuild that strength after so many surgeries including the massive surgery when they took my kidneys out and i've got a scar kind of from my sternum all the way down past below my belly button so i've got this massive scar and then pd my stomach muscles were literally non-existent <laughs> and pilates is what saved me and i was doing it pretty intensely for quite a long time and i still do it now so yeah but running on pd should be fine um obviously if you have discomfort or you're worried anything like that you should always also talk to your doctor or nurses um but i certainly found it was okay there we go and if anyone wants to send in questions for future podcasts i will post on all the social media pages uh, instagram and facebook are at transplants take on sport pod and twitter is at ttos pod so if you go and follow them you'll find out the day before we record who's going on what they do and you can ask any questions you want there will be more coming up throughout the rest of this podcast so please go and follow join the team
So let's move on to when you changed dialysis. You spent five years on overnight APD, and then you made the change to hemodialysis. What was the reasoning behind that, and how did you do it? So there are some people go to hospital and some people do it at home. That's right, yeah. So for me, that was also tied up around the attempted transplant as well. So we already knew in the run up to the transplant, um, which was October 9th, no, October 2003, we knew that my PD was no longer working as well. And that's very common with PD after a number of years. I believe five years is actually quite a good time to to do well on PD. Some people get a little more, some people um, might get lots of infections or the peritoneal membrane in your body isn't really designed for dialysis. So ultimately, the efficiency of it does wear out. Um, And it is really important if you are on PD and you start to get um, sort of situations where your efficiency of clearance so your your clearance of toxins starts to drop or you're getting pain or it's not draining as well you really do talk to your team about it because you don't want to let that go on too long because it can cause some quite significant complications if you push it too hard for too long so we knew that pd was coming to a natural end for me but of course the transplant was supposed to be the resolution to that um so when the transplant didn't work um i needed dialysis immediately to, to keep me to keep me going while we tried to get the kidney to work so I had a neckline put in, which lots of people, I guess, will be familiar with. But it's a it's a tube that goes into the really big vein in your neck that goes right down to near your heart, and that's to give you access to your blood so that you can go on hemodialysis. Um, and hemodialysis is where the blood's all removed from the body, and it goes through a special filter called a dialyzer, which is essentially in, like an artificial kidney. And the toxins and accumulated fluid in your body are removed that way, and then the clean blood is put back in. Um, so that was a sort of interim solution till I'd got past the transplant disaster, removed the kidney and also just stabilised a little bit because I was incredibly unwell at that point. Um, so the haemodialysis was in hospital at that time just to get me well. So for, from that point of view, I was doing it three times a week in hospital for four hours at a time on the machine, which the majority of dialysis patients who are doing hemo will be doing. Um, as I'd already been on PD at home, fully in control, not being dictated to by a hospital schedule um, and generally living my life. The thought of being in hospital to do dialysis for any length of time was completely impossible for me. I just had to get out. (laughs) And um, I was I was I was not happy, but it had to be done in the hospital until I was at least clinically stable (laughs) after my surgery. Um, and then, of course, using a neckline is really intended only to be a sort of temporary way of accessing your blood. I know there are people who have necklines for the long term. Um, and, you know, if that's the right thing for them in discussion with their medical team, that that's, you know, that's fine. Um, generally, they do really want to try and have people to create a fistula because there's a much lower infection risk than a neckline. Um, and you do tend to get better dialysis clearance through a fistula. And also for me, we knew now, we knew at that point that dialysis was going to be extremely long term for me because the transplant option just wasn't an, wasn't an option. So um, after a couple of months, I think it was only maybe two months after they removed the donated kidney, I had my first and currently only fistula created. Um, and you mentioned you mentioned about you know your concerns over fistulas previously, and I, I do think there's an awful lot of mythology about fistulas, which isn't is not very helpful for patients actually, um, because a fistula is uh, essentially all it is 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 that they join the vein in your arm, usually in your forearm, some people in their upper arm. It depends on how good their veins are to an artery that runs much deeper in the arm and that arterial blood flow is rerouted to run through 
the vein, which then grows and expands because it's got that really powerful blood flow pushing through it. And once it's grown and expanded, which is called um, maturing and takes usually sort of maybe eight to 12 weeks for a fistula typically to mature, means that that vein is then big enough and, and strong enough for you to start putting needles in it for hemodialysis. And you would typically put two needles in and the blood would go out of one, go around the machine and go back in the other. Um, now, fistulas, you mentioned this too, um, when you're repeatedly putting needles in them all the time and you've got this really powerful blood flow going through them all the time, they can over time grow to be quite big or they might have kind of lumps and bumps on them as well, which a lot of people find very unsightly. They don't like the look of it. Um, they think they're very, con they're very conscious of it. They think other people will be seeing it all the time. Um, which is absolutely fair. And and I have seen, you know, some fistulas that really do do grow significantly. So my first tip um, is that the way to minimise lumps and bumps forming on your fistula, if you have one, is to learn to needle it yourself as soon as you possibly can, because your technique will be so much better than nursing nurses who are doing it to you, but they can't feel from the inside what it's, you know, what that needle feels like going in, whereas you can. So you can have a very good, very accurate technique of putting your needles in and I promise anyone who is thinking I could never put a needle in my own arm it is not as bad as it seems uh, I always say to people a fistula is made for putting needles in and especially when it's matured properly and grown sufficiently that you know it's quite a nice wide I imagine it in my head like a tunnel yeah. and the needle is the train and you're putting the train through the tunnel and the tunnel is perfectly well equipped to accommodate it um, and, and the more you do it the less painful it gets so, um, so yeah, so I had my fistula created and I'm not saying it was easy from day one. It really wasn't. So mine took a very long time to mature. Initially, it needed a couple of extra procedures on it. So it's called a fistulaplasty, which was to put a balloon in and widen it because it wasn't really growing and developing properly. Um, and because I'm very small, my veins are quite small. So everything is just a bit smaller. So it, you know, it took a while. I would say it took about six months for my fistula to really settle um, so I still had my neckline in that whole time, obviously, to use for dialysis. Um, and I was, you know, learning, learning how to needle it myself and um, kind of getting to grips with with having this sort of scar all down my arm and thinking everyone's looking at me. And actually nobody was looking at me. Nobody really notices it except for me. <laughs> and, um, you know, all these years later, actually, because I have self needled the entire time and that's kind of 17 years on hemodialysis so far. It's still really flat, really small, and you can't really see it. And I've had extra surgery done on it since, and I've had various things done to kind of repair it and deal with problems that have arisen over many, many years. But my fistula is my lifeline. It's incredible. And I have no issue with having it out, visible. If people want to ask you what it is, they can. I I just think my arm keeps me alive, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, yeah. And the party trick of letting people put their hand on it and feeling it buzzing because a fistula has like it's called a thrill where the blood is going through it and you can feel it like vibrating on the surface of your skin I find that quite cool it's quite reassuring I know I'm, I'm still alive I can still hear it <laughs> um so yeah so so for hemodialysis you know the access to your blood is critical obviously and it's a very important decision that everybody needs to make and it's personal to each person like no one can tell anyone else what the right thing is to do but I would just put it out there that fistulas get a bad rep sometimes and I don't think it's accurate. And also, if you go on social media 
particularly Facebook support groups and things, you are always going to see the worst stories because people rightly are coming onto those groups for support because they're worried something's gone wrong maybe what you don't hear is all the thousands of patients who have perfect fistulas who are dialyzing every day and you know no bother so uh, yeah i would just put that out there (laughs) (laughs) plenty of people do it and this might sound like a daft question considering how long you've been on dialysis for but have you ever had a phobia of needles (laughs) um I mean, obviously, nobody likes needles. Actually, I never had a phobia of them. But in my time when I was younger, when I was very, very unwell, going in and out of hospital, having lots of emergencies and crises, I had some pretty traumatic experiences. So procedures that were being done very quickly, not really with proper anaesthetic or anything, just because it was an emergency. So, and I've had, you know, having lots of necklines put in under local, which actually, when you stay calm and focus and all the rest of it and having femoral lines put into my leg artery too, again, under local, they are not as bad. They're not actually as painful as you think. But when you're in a traumatic situation, your body obviously panics about everything. So yeah. I had got a little bit, you know, stressed about procedures generally and having line, you know, cannulas put in and not having any veins left. And I was having them put in my feet or wherever they could find a vein. So I wouldn't say I was phobic, but I was totally sick of hospital procedures and needles and bits of equipment and tubes and all the rest of it. Um, so I wasn't, it wasn't like I was delighted to have a fistula. However, the fistula was really the key because I was trying to get home on hemodialysis. And that's all I wanted was to be home. And I could not get out of the hospital fast enough. And all I was doing was gunning to get trained be competent self-needling, be able to run my machine and get home. So I would have done anything. I mean, bigger needles, more needles. <laughs> I probably would have just done it anyway. Um, so I was always, always focused on the end goal. And f- and I, I think that's important too, you know, when any of us are facing maybe like a transition in our care. So going from one type of dialysis to another or starting for the first time, maybe sadly a failing transplant, that kind of thing. You can't get too caught up in all the pain points that are going to happen over that coming kind of weeks or months, but you've got to have the end goal clear. This is what I'm aiming to get to. And always focus on that. And for me, that was get onto home hemo as quickly as I possibly could. On the topic of the traumatic experiences with needles and lines going into your body, I've got a bit of a story. I wanted to get your your take on it, your view on it as someone who's who's been through those sort of things. This is going to be mm-hmm. on nowhere near the same level as what you've been through. But when I was first, I say crash landed into hospital, which was actually by the time this goes out, it'll be the Sunday after. So Mother's Day this year, three years ago. I ended up in hospital with unexpectedly low kidney function and was told to spend that I'll be spending the night or the next few nights on the ward trying to get all the blood pressure down. And they wanted to put a cannula in my arm to see just in mm-hmm. case that they needed to use it for whatever treatment. I didn't ask what the treatment could be and thankfully it didn't need to be used. But I'll try and show you on the our webcam. Um so they didn't put the cannula in the back of my hand. They put mm-hmm. it in sort of the and your, your, in your wrist, wrist. Yeah. yeah on the, the top of my wrist um which I, again is, i thought was normal completely normal as well but it wouldn't go in mm. it would go in and then sort of hit the i don't know if we've got hard veins or something it just hit the vein and not go in and they tried a few different veins it took about four goes to get it in i was lying back gritting my teeth closing my yeah. eyes like, <laughs> yeah why is it not going because it hurts they're quite wide tubes mm. and needles aren't they and then it came, that had scarred me, not physically, just 
mentally mentally that's, that's um... what I mean by trauma <laughs> it's no it's traumatic and you saying you know it doesn't stack up to what I've been through that's not at all we've you know everything that can be traumatic is traumatic it's not you know one trauma is worse than another um it's also the lack of control and that loss of power and not knowing what's going on in the moment being worried about what's happening with your health people doing things to you which immediately makes you very passive you're you know you're not getting to have a say in this they're just doing stuff to yeah. me and that is a very challenging scenario to find yourself in and the combination of that loss of control and it hurts and you're scared and it's all completely new will create quite a traumatic sense in your mind and that is completely normal to feel like that <laughs> and actually with 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 cannulas like that um if, if it won't go in very well usually it's because either your veins aren't straight so your veins a bit wiggly and it's hitting the bend or that's probably it um, i can look at my arms yeah <laughs> or i mean human bodies sadly aren't, aren't perfect on the inside um or this sometimes has like it's like a little valve in your vein it's just like a little internal feature of the vein that is like a flap almost or so i imagine it i don't know if that's technically correct but essentially it's hitting an obstruction if that's the case really yeah they ought to just try a different vein i don't know what they were doing specifically for your procedure but um it is also always okay to say to a doctor or nurse you know unless unless you're literally it's an cr- absolute emergency crisis if it's traumatic and they've had three or four attempts it is fine to say please can we have a break and can we try this again later because i can't handle any more attempts right now that's perfectly okay and i do think we all need to communicate to staff sometimes um i know a lot of staff who also have their own personal rule if i can't get that in in three attempts they walk away as well because they get nervous. They don't want to be hurting the patient and they get anxious about the fact that they've missed it several times and they may well go and ask a, a colleague to try instead. And same with blood tests too. And that's fine. I always think, you know, yeah. what? let's just all have a cup of tea and we'll try again. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned that same story on my transplant day because I knew that we were going to have to mm-hmm. put one in again. I thought, please not that again, hoping that it would go in first time. And they tried the same thing again. I mentioned it to the anaesthetist. They tried about two or three times, not going in. I'm lying on the the metal table that's freezing anyway, nervous about to go, go under for the transplant. And they got to the point where they actually put, I, I, I'm trying to get the number right. I was in a bit of a state. Uh, probably about three or four doses of local anesthetic into my wrist and hand just mm. to, get, to allow them to put more force into it and get it in. But I then went to sleep and woke up not feeling my hand or wrist. Oh, it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> but did they? As long as they got the cannula in at that point, oh, yeah. if you're having a transplant, that's that's definitely the main thing. Um, now, what I would say is also with I was talking about the fistula. Um, is is fistula surgery is typically done under local anaesthetic, not general. Which again, for some people, that is too difficult. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care 
a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. To contemplate, in which case it is absolutely fine to discuss with them the option to have a general. Sometimes you get presented with options in the hospital and you think you just have to go with that option. There is always scope to have a discussion. Um, but I did, because I'd had so many general anaesthetics already by the point of the fistula being created, I, I really didn't want an extra one if I didn't have to have it. So I had my first fistula done under local anaesthetic. And so it was the first time I'd been fully awake through an entire surgery in the theatre um, and watching what the surgeon was doing, which was I didn't think I'd be able to watch, but actually it was quite cool. And we just had such a good chat the whole way through this procedure. He was operating on my arm, chatting away about all sorts. And I got to choose the music on the radio <laughs> in the theatre. And there were lovely nurses who were looking after me. And I had loads of blankets because it's always cold in theatre. And um, weirdly, they made it like a really just comfortable kind of process. And, and you know, local anaesthetic it does the pain you still feel that there's like stuff pushing and pulling and going on but you have to just it, you, you can imagine pain sometimes as well your brain yeah, tells definitely. you this this should hurt and then you think oh gosh this hurts and actually it doesn't really you've just got yourself in a bit of a sort of panic understandably of course and um I actually I didn't know at the time I used to use a technique that I sort of taught myself when I was quite young going through a lot of bad stuff with, with procedures and things was which I now know is actually called visualization theory, where I used to be laying in whatever scenario I was in. And I used to pretend I was lying in a boat on like the Caribbean Sea, somewhere warm. And I, there was an island and I could hear birds and I could hear the water and the sun on my skin. And I used to convince myself so much detail of the scenario that that's where I went in my head. And um, I now know that is actually a valid technique for, for kind of mindfulness and anxiety management. Yeah. I, that's what I was doing a lot of the times was just removing myself from the entire situation <laughs> let's move on to the the sports side now fitness you big into we had a bit of a chat before you sent me some information how did you regain your fitness after the kidney initially failed and then the failed transplant afterwards um 
my biggest motto is slow and steady. So there are no quick wins with this stuff, which can be a little bit annoying because you just want it all to be like a magic wand and you'll be back to normal and it's fine. Um, I would say my mental focus was as important as my physical strength. And that's why I would go back to the fact that a lot of people may well want to sort of look at supporting their mental health when, you know, when they're diagnosed or when they start dialysis, when they've had their transplant, lots of different points, people might, might, might need that support. And I do think if you want to focus on pushing yourself physically, starting an exercise regime, um, you know, building up to whatever, it's much more difficult to do that initial motivation when you're not in a mentally good place. So it is absolutely right that you should seek that support. Um, and, and I would say, you know, we all know that you can, you know, if you think you need to do a workout, but you're chilling on the couch and it's nice and it's comfy and you think, oh, I can't be bothered to work out. And that's just a sort of normal everyday problem. When you've been going through major health issues like people have and your fitness may well have plummeted to real low levels and you could well be exhausted and unfit and in pain, then you're going to need so much more motivation to start. Um, so, so I think, you know, to be in a strong mental state and if you're not, then seek that support. That would be my first piece of advice, I guess. Um, I, I I was lucky in terms of my mental state actually always stayed pretty steady and upbeat, apart from the very worst moments, you know, immediately post-transplant when understandably I was very distressed about the fact that it hadn't worked. But generally, mentally, I've always felt quite strong. So I've always said, okay, right, I'm starting from square one, because I usually am. If I've got that ill and something so bad has happened, you're back to square one. Um, and I started with really short walking goals. So, you know, I was living at home at my parents at the time. Walking to the post box at the end of their road was was like an achievement. So that's all I did. That was why I had to do that every day. And then I would walk a bit further every day or I'd start walking up and down stairs because the stairs were a bit harder. And I would chip away and chip away and just add distance uh, uh, gradually because walking is an incredible way to just get yourself going um you might have been a runner previously you might have done all sorts of stuff but when you've when your body's been through that much you do have to respect that recovery takes time so I would just walk a little bit longer every day and then I would probably just uh, I mean I think if I was at school so after the initial situation um at some point I remember I went back to playing netball and things so I think I just was sort of walking and walking and then doing maybe a little bit more active jogging and things like that. And then I definitely went back horse riding, which is quite physically, you know, you need quite a lot of, not physical strength, but the horse is doing a lot of the work, but you need to be strong and you need to be fit. It does raise your heart rate. Um, and it was sort of like chipping away at it. And suddenly, you know, I found the point where I was running again quite easily and um, I had more stamina and I could do it for longer. So I do remember when I was at school, I think with the PE teacher, she would kind of put me in and out of the game, like netball, for example. I would play shorter sections of the game and then I would yeah. come off and substitute and have a break and then go back in when I was ready. And that was the thing. I needed to be honest with the people around me as well. There was no point in me coming on going, yeah, I can play a whole game and I'll be fine and then collapsing because everyone would then never let me play anything again. So it was about being honest with yourself. You know, give it 10 minutes and have a break. And that's fine. It's not a weakness. It's not something to be ashamed of. And, and build it up like that. And again, Pilates was just uh, incredible. Um, it's, I think, is it, it's one of the most powerful forms of exercise any of us can do at any point in our life, regardless of our goals. Um, yoga was also really good because, you know, lots of sedentary sitting down, lying in hospital beds, you know, your body seizes up and you can't really do a lot of things like running until you've got your flexibility back as well. And you don't want to injure yourself, obviously. Um, 
and, and, and find the things you love doing. So you might not like running, so don't go running. If you enjoy dancing, do some dancing. You know, do the thing that you love because you're much more likely to go and actually try and do it. Absolutely. And I've, I've used that same philosophy pretty much, you know, after every major situation. It's rebuild, rebuild, step by step. Don't rush it. Um, but then in the longer term, set more ambitious goals because I do find that having something to work towards helps keep me focused and that's I suppose more recently that's really where I've, I've gone to with my physical fitness and challenges as well I think what you said there mentality and targets are so key to everything fitness wise and just generally whether it's fitness mm. or or not you've got to be you've got to want to do it and set yourself goals that are realistic that you can hit absolutely in everything and in work as well I mean I run my own business and I work a lot of hours a week and the only reason I'm so motivated to do that is because I love what I'm doing and that's that's always the goal is you know there's something that I'm doing it for a reason or I really wouldn't bother um and certainly for fitness you've got to have it but also you've got to have goals that are flexible you've got to allow it's not giving in if you have the odd bad day where you can't go do the thing that you wanted to do that day because sometimes I think we beat ourselves up more than we need to because our bodies are a bit unpredictable can be a bit rubbish don't always (laughs) do what we want and for me, I'm always very hard on myself. You know, you should be doing this. Don't give in. Don't give up. That's weak. That's, you know, and I I would never do that to anyone else, but I tell it to myself. <laughs> Someone else, I would say, listen to your body. You obviously, it's not your day. Try again tomorrow. I'm getting there. But um, I think we are quite self-critical and you forget that healthy people with no issues at all also have bad days where they just don't make it to the gym or they don't hit their 5k time or whatever they don't exercise for a week or for many weeks so I do think we have to remember also that it's you know I say normal it's not about normal but people without health issues have those days too it's not just because we're rubbish or you know we can't we're not as good as other people in fact I think we're superhuman in many ways for doing all the things that we all, we actually do manage to do despite the health issues but it is all this is also fine to occasionally say you know what it's not my day I'll do this another day we've got a couple of listening questions on the fitness topic we've got one in from Rohit who says Maddie I'm from India and I'm suffering with CKD stage four I wanted to know if you also suffer from high blood pressure if yes then how are you managing it so well than living an active an active life because I'm struggling big time with my hypertension I'll let you go first. I've got my view. Yeah. Okay, sure. Um, so I think firstly, for anyone listening, so CKD stage four is is sort of quite a late stage of chronic kidney disease, but there are five stages in total. So stage five is where your kidneys are really kind of packing up completely. Stage four, you will quite certainly be having some symptoms. And obviously, th- this person has been diagnosed with it. And um, you may be on medication and things. And one of the quite common symptoms when kidney function is not great is high blood pressure. Um which, you know, it's always worth, first of all, having a proper discussion with your medical team about are you really on the right combination of medications and things? Because nowadays, blood pressure should be easier to control than, you know, perhaps in the past. We have a lot more meds available to us and different combinations of them taken at different times of day. There's all sorts of things you can try to bring blood pressure down because sadly, you know, damaged kidneys and and low function does cause high blood pressure um, and and you can't really take away that cause. But apart from medication and getting that right, trying different things, communicate with your medical team, go back and push them if you're just, you know, if it's not doing anything. But also thinking about diet as well. So salt in particular, eating a low salt diet. And again, this is not medical advice, but typically it's good for us to reduce salt because salt can push up your blood pressure. 
um, to answer the specific question, when my kidneys were, when I was going through my main kind of period of FSGS and my kidneys function was all over the place, I did have really quite high blood pressure at times, dangerously high. And at those times, I was not out running and exercising. Um, I'm going to be realistic here. You do have to listen to your body. Um, and, you know, if your heart is already under strain from high, high blood pressure, um, certainly things like running and very lively jumping around exercise um, is probably you have to be careful. And again, that is a question for a medical professional. However, things like yoga, um, sort of stretching, flexibility based exercise, walking, just lots of walking um, is really good for you. And that's not going to put your body under the same pressure as running, for example, um, and actually can reduce your blood pressure, as can yoga and using good breathing techniques and things like that. So I think it's about what exercise you try to do alongside as much symptom control as possible. For me, I actually have ridiculously low blood pressure now. I'm on nocturnal hemodialysis and I do lots of dialysis very gently overnight. And I have now ended up with incredibly low blood pressure. It's so low that I sometimes have to be careful that it doesn't drop too low and then I end up getting dizzy <laughs> um, and I've learned how to interpret every single thing my body does and, and the little signs and symptoms that it's dropping too low and I probably need to drink more um so yeah it, everybody's different but certainly checking in with your medical professionals and having a very honest conversation is the first thing you should be doing you've said everything I was going to say uh, <laughs> talk to your medical professional <laughs> is, is key because when we're not medical uh, we're not experts, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was on, um, I don't think I was on all at the same time. I was on Lasartan, Ramipril, Amlodipine for a bit, but that made my mm. legs swell up quite a lot. Uh, there was, I think there might have been something else. And the low salt diet was key for me. Mm-hmm. I made sure I controlled that really well and stayed to, stayed strict with it. I didn't have takeaways or fast food or anything. Maybe once in a blue moon, that might be fine. But I was really strict on that. And I'm still, yeah. I'm conscious of it now, but I'm not as extreme with it. But I was going to the gym a lot as well at that point. I was mm-hmm. 90, yeah, 19. I was going to the gym a lot and I did ease that off and eventually stop. Mm. But it's again, talk one. to your medical team. <laughs> yeah. And the causes of high blood pressure when you've got kidney disease are quite different to what they might be in other conditions or sort of if you've just got high blood pressure for another reason um so yeah but you can still exercise and be mobile keep moving oh, yeah. around definitely uh, we had another question which is quite relevant actually how has shielding affected your fitness levels mine have gone right down that's come from stella um i know who stella is actually um so it's a very good question and i know loads of people including not even kidney patients who are shielding just everyone in lockdown has found this hard um I think this is where I and initially as we all know the shielding messaging that came out very suddenly was really quite shockingly strict and you know we were literally told do not set foot outside your door yeah um I am open a window if you want (laughs) I know I know that those text messages will haunt me for the rest of the time I was like what do you mean I can only open a window what are you talking about um I am very lucky, though, because I live in the middle of nowhere, literally on a farm. Um, So actually, even though it said do not go out, I I quickly came to the conclusion that going out is fine if you won't meet any people and all they have, all we have around here are sheep. So it's pretty okay. Um, So I was, you know, initially I was shielding, but I was absolutely still going outside um, quite a lot, in fact. Um, But also this is, I think, where I kind of 
found the reserves of determination I guess which you you know which I've had to rely on occasions when my body decides to give up on me at hopeless moments um where I just decided because I was already in a really regular active fitness regime I was weight training twice a week um you know doing Zumba Pilates yoga dance classes like lots of fitness but mostly out with other people or in a gym or with a PT or in a class setting because I like to fit I like sociable fitness um I realized I needed to replicate that at home on the internet as quickly as possible because what I really didn't want to do was lose any of my fitness. Um, now I've got myself to the point where I am so happy with how fit I am. I will do everything to preserve it, which sometimes <laughs> means I'm a bit obsessive, maybe. So I just switched really to doing everything online. So including um, doing training with um, my PT, who I was already training with, um, he started doing online sessions um, and we were just using equipment. We were adapting what was around the house. And then I managed to obtain a couple of dumbbells, even though they were like gold dust at the time. Um, so at home, I got myself kind of some resistant bands, a couple of dumbbells um, and then whatever else was lying around the house. So dialysis tanks are an excellent six kilogram weight. Um, they're a little bit they're a bit sloshy, though, and they're not very easy to hold on to, but they do work well. Um, and so I still carried on training with him online, so through Zoom. Um, and he also and, and he also was sort of saying, look, just do whatever you just do whatever you can to keep active. So then I started doing Zumba classes online. I have a limited space in my tiny living room. So me leaping around doing Zumba was quite funny whilst crashing into the couch and all the rest of it. <laughs> um and, and same for Pilates yoga. What it was because I found that so many of the exercise professionals quickly adapted as well to run things online. And then I was going on epic daily walks. I mean the last at the beginning of all this, we were lucky that we were going into spring. So you know in the evenings after work I was marching off into the countryside and walking for as long as I could get really before it got dark. Um and and what I, so I just kind of kept going but mixed it up and did whatever was available and tried different things and if I didn't enjoy a class I didn't do it again um and what I landed on in the end was was keeping on with the weight trading lots of hit as well because there's so many hit classes on YouTube um hit being high intensity interval training for anyone who wants to know and that's where you do 20 minutes it's really really hard and you push really hard and, and you have limited gaps between exercises but it is over in 20 minutes um I wouldn't suggest if you're not particularly fit that you go straight in on a hit class you want to probably build up to it but it is very effective and can be done in a tiny space at home with no equipment um anyone who was doing PE with Joe Wicks perhaps through lockdown which obviously was very popular he he has loads and loads of hit videos as do as does my personal trainer and um you know lots of professionals out there um have that sort of content so find what works for you I guess and that's what I did um and, and more recently you know with the rules changing and being into tears and back to tears and allowed out to meet six people or not six people I'll be honest after around May sort of June time I wasn't really shielding anymore I was still being very careful but I wasn't strictly shielding um which is a personal choice again absolutely not something I'm recommending just that was what was right for me um and then I have actually been back training with my PT you know since then when things relaxed and we were allowed to train again I went started going back to he'd equipped his garage out so I've never gone back to the gym because I consider that to be too risky but training one-on-one, -on -one, socially distanced in a in his garage, which is open, out in the open air, um, is has been marvellous for me. And I, I I know I'm incredibly lucky to have access to that. And I'm very appreciative of that fact because, you know, that's that strength training is really important to me. But I was able to continue at home when I wasn't able to access that too. Let's talk about some 
sports that you do that maybe you haven't been doing recently because of the lockdowns and shielding? Uh, <laughs> skydiving. How did you get into that? <laughs> um, a bit kind of random. You know when I said you have to find the joy in your life? I had no idea that was my joy. Um, basically, I have always been up for an adventure. I've always loved skiing. I I ride horses. I, I, for a while, I was riding racehorses and stuff. So I like speed. I like adrenaline. I actually have come to the conclusion, because I have been through so much with my health and I face such difficult situations and really scary, life-threatening scenarios, uh, I don't scare very easily anymore. And so I think I'm clearly on the hunt for as much adrenaline and fear as I can possibly find <laughs> just to see if it, you know, to see what happens, which maybe I don't know if that's healthy or not. But um, I signed up to do a tandem skydive for charity to raise money for Kidney Research UK. Um, all the kidney charities do do kind of sponsored skydives. So pretty much, you know, anyone can go and do that. Um, and that was in 2000 and I think 14 or maybe 15, I can't remember how many years ago, anyway, and I went and did um, this tandem skydive, for, it was for World Kidney Day, so actually it was around this time in March, five or six years ago, and and I had never really thought about skydiving before, I hadn't planned that I really wanted to do a tandem jump, but I know a lot of people kind of have it on a sort of bucket list, I don't have a bucket list, I have a, oh I've got an idea, I'm going to go do it list, because I can't rely on the future going to plan so bucket yeah. list is too few it's too forward looking for me I just need to sort of do everything now um so I signed up to do this jump and turned up and it was the most stunningly beautiful blue spring day in March very cold but just gorgeous in the Oxfordshire countryside and met um the guy who was going to be my skydive instructor who is now a good friend of mine um and he I had the briefing they told me what to do and off we go and we march up and get on this plane and suddenly I'm like on the plane halfway up I suddenly realised that I have just agreed to jump out <laughs> attached to someone who I've literally only just met. Um, but I just can't even describe how it felt. So we did the jump and the whole way down, I, I mean, it was mind blowing, but just the thrill and the exhilaration was like nothing else. And when we landed and we're kind of having a, a chat afterwards, I, I didn't even really know that skydiving was a sport you could get into in that way. I could see there were people there at the drop zone with the airfield who were jumping out of the plane, obviously on their own and in small groups and having fun. And they were the fun jumpers. Um, and I asked him and he said, yeah, you, you know, you can do your A license. You can learn to, to jump um, on your own and get qualified and, you know, get into it as a sport. Um, so I did the really mature thing of going home and booking the training course and putting it on my credit card <laughs> <laughs> because I was like, I really need to do this. Um and actually, funnily enough, skydiving as a sport, um, a tandem is much, much more expensive. Once you get into the sport and you're qualified, the jumps per jump, it's a lot cheaper. So otherwise it would you know, be completely unaffordable. Um, and I went and did my A license. So then I was qualified to solo jump and I met amazing people. The skydiving community is just amazing. They're so much fun, real kind of live in the moment people everybody's just there to to get better at what they're doing but have a laugh doing it everybody looks out for each other it's a massive family so I loved that kind of vibe and the people I was meeting um I must confess it never crossed my mind that I maybe shouldn't be skydiving because of my dialysis or being in kidney failure I didn't really even ask um but it's been fine I mean <laughs> it hasn't affected me <laughs> in any way um and I just got more and more into it so over the past sort of five-ish years, I, I've done, I've nearly done 500 jumps. Um, wow. 
I would have done 500, but last year, obviously, it was lockdown. We didn't really do any jumping at all. But I was averaging about 100 jumps a year up to that point. So all my weekends in the summers and, you know, whenever I had a spare moment, we just rush to the drop zone and jump out of planes all day. Um, I met awesome people and I met an amazing group of girls and we formed our own team. So the four of us are a part of a skydiving team called Fireflies. And we basically... um, one of the things you can do in skydiving is learn to jump in groups or in formations where you jump together and you make lots of different pretty shapes in the sky, essentially. Um, and we've been training as a team for a few years now and we entered um, the British Skydiving Championships a couple of years ago. I think 2017 was our first competition and we entered in the junior category and we honestly just thought we'd have a giggle and it would be really cool and we'd learn from all these amazing people who were around us watching jumping. And that's the great thing about skydiving. It's such a leveling kind of sport because you can be jumping alongside literally world champion top skydivers and they will talk to you and they'll give you advice and they'll share information you know they make you feel welcome there's no there's not too much hierarchy in the sport which is wonderful um so we competed in our first competition we actually got a silver medal which i think we were quite surprised about um (laughs) and overjoyed obviously really happy and in formation skydiving essentially you have a set of jumps which are um randomly generators so different shapes have different uh, numbers or letters associated with them so that the random generator will draw out eight different jumps and each jump has a different set of shapes so then you, you kind of do loads of practice on the ground which is called dirt diving which is really funny if you ever see a group of skydivers all crawling on the floor and pretending to make shapes that they're going to then go and do in the sky and then you have a camera flyer who jumps with you films your entire jump and watches everything you do and then the judges look at the camera footage and judge your jump by the quality of basically how many points you've achieved and to get the points you have to all have the right grips at the right time and then you need to do it as fast as possible so you can get as many points as you can in the 30 seconds of the jump and then everybody lands safely ideally and then you go and do it again and and so we yeah so we won a silver medal which was amazing and I, I think we were just pretty shocked but it was awesome and then we've been training as a team ever since then um and, we, you know, we would have gone back to the Nationals. We've been back to the Nationals once since, so we went up a category um, and competed at a slightly more challenging level. Um, and we came fifth that time, which I think there was a lot. We, we know a lot more now, so we're obviously harder on ourselves about, oh, we could have done all of this better and that better. But honestly, the fun is just you can't think about anything else when you're skydiving. I cannot think about work. I can't think about dialysis. I can't. I have to focus on that moment and what we're doing and having a laugh with people and getting it right and constantly practicing and improving. And so for me, it takes me out of my head completely in a really, really positive way. I read your story online. There was a photo on it of you just casually falling through the air, waving at a camera. I thought, that's amazing. <laughs> it's a bit weird when you think about it, like what we're doing up there. Um and, you know, I, I consider myself to be a, such a junior skydiver. I mean, 500 jumps is nothing compared to people who have thousands upon thousands and have been jumping for many, many years. And, you know, my flying is, there's an awful lot wrong with my flying and my techniques. And, I, you know, I'm, you know I, I do a lot of the four-way team stuff, which is where I'm really focusing my learning. But, you know, there are, you know, there are, you can do free flying, you can learn to wingsuit. There are so many disciplines in the sport as well. So you can keep taking it to new levels if you want to. Um, and, and yeah, I think the photo you've seen probably was 
um, in the Algarve because um, you can travel a lot and skydive abroad as well. And I have jumped in. I've jumped in Portugal. I've jumped in Dubai. It, I've been really lucky. And I, you know, I travel on dialysis quite a lot because I just book into clinics wherever I happen to go, which yeah. uh, maybe not for this podcast, but I do encourage people to give travel a go because it is all absolutely feasible and, and possible and you do need to get away. Um, and I've met amazing friends through the sport too. It's good to hear. I think the, we'll come on to your training, but when you mentioned the the practicing on the ground, I thought of, I don't know if you've seen Top Gear, I thought of the what's known as the Clarkson depth test for snow. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, I don't know what that is, no. <laughs> uh, basically, Jeremy Clarkson would stand near a big pile of snow and see how deep it is. He would just put his hands slightly above his head and dive in head first. <laughs> yeah, literally diving. <laughs> yes, I can, I can totally see why you'd imagine that. Um, yeah, essentially that there are these things which are like, um, like, uh, uh well, they're, they're called creepers, but they're kind of like little skateboardy things on three wheels and then you can lie on them and then you can rotate. You've got 360 degree rotation lying flat on this thing on the ground. So then you can pretend you're in your horizontal plane as if you were in free fall together. And then you practice all the grips and where you need to be and how you move around. And that's dirt diving. It's hilarious. That sounds a lot, a lot better than diving headfirst into the ground. I don't know. Snow angels is right. <laughs> <laughs> what skills are required to skydive? And what's, what else does your training involve? Um, I mean, I think in terms of, of getting better as a skydiver, you need to be you know, very open to learning, very open to feedback and coaching. Um, obviously, yes, it is, a, it is a risky activity, clearly. Uh, it's not as high risk if you're, you know, as, as a lot of other sports, actually, in terms of if you look at the statistics, but, um, you know, complacency is the thing that will always cause you problems. So you need to never get too complacent and think, I'm really good at this now. It's fine. Like you should always be very respectful of the sport, the risk, your ability, that kind of thing. Um, so you obviously need you need you need the ability to listen and learn. You need the willingness to practice because, you know, you really do have to practice to perfect um skills in the sky whatever those skills are that you're trying to work on teamwork and communication between your team if you're jumping as a group is so important and that's you know agreeing what you're doing on the ground and then doing that together as much as you can in the air and if it goes wrong no no tantrums no blame games it's like okay it's fine what went wrong we'll work on that next um and I'm lucky I have such an awesome group of girls in my team and we just get on so well and we never ever have situations where it's like you ruined that jump or you did that wrong we're always more like oh I oh sorry that was me like I made a mistake um but I think also just you know general level of strength and flexibility is important too in skydiving um you know the more flexible you are so you know things like the yoga and pilates and the work you do on the ground really does help you in the sky so just being fit generally um you need quite a lot of stamina if you're going to spend a whole day jumping there's a lot of adrenaline going on you're carrying a big heavy rig around all day you can you might be packing your rig as well which is quite physical in itself although shouldn't really be but I tend to make a meal out of my packing as much as I possibly can um so so that general level of fitness and, and certainly flexibility is really helpful in skydiving um and we do train in the wind tunnel as well which is where you can go and fly around in the the, the tube of wind and <laughs> um, get a lot more you yeah, have you good as I say anybody who ever hasn't flown in the wind tunnel should go do it because it is amazing fun as I'm sure you'll agree um and that the tunnel is fantastic for training but if you know if you're going to do an hour or 40 minutes in the wind tunnel over quite a short period of time that's exhausting so just physical fitness and strength is helpful you spoke about packing a lot 
let's go on to your hiking, walking, where you might pack a big bag. You hike up mountains. Which ones have you done? <laughs> makes it sound really grand. I would say, I mean, I haven't done any kind of major like overnight hike, so I've luckily not had to ever carry too much up mountains. Um, but I, I've done all three peaks. So I've climbed Ben, not on, I didn't do the three peak challenge. I didn't do them in 24 hours because even I think that sounds a bit mad. Um, but I've climbed Ben Nevis in Scotland, Snowdon in Wales and Scarfell Pike um, in the Lake District. And I've also climbed Kinder Scout, which is another one um, in the Peak District. And I just, I love just hiking out in the wildest places that I can get to. Um, and like, you know, in the UK, I think we're lucky. We have far more amazing, beautiful countryside and wild places to go than we maybe realise. Um, and, you know, going up hills. Okay. Yeah. It's not the easiest. And sometimes I'll be part way up and think, why on earth did I set out to do this? Because <laughs> hiking up hills is it's you, you kind of need slow and steady again you, you know I'm not someone who will ever be running up a mountain although I saw people running up and then down Ben Nevis which was just unbelievable how they were doing that um but I you know I did Ben Nevis as a charity fundraiser um actually and then the others I did with groups of friends just because we wanted you know to see if we could and push ourselves and um and again I suppose for that you do need a level of fitness I mean you can take a mountain really slowly and get yourself up it very very slowly you need to take account of things like the daylight and you know how long it's going to actually take you um and I wouldn't say any of them were easy but they were perfectly achievable um the biggest thing actually for people on dialysis and sometimes transplanted too with exercise is is making sure you've got good hemoglobin so that you're not anemic and we know that anemia is really common when you've got kidney failure or on dialysis and anemia really affects your oxygen carrying capacity it makes your body just everything's tough and I've been desperately anemic lots of times over the years um most recently just at Christmas where my hemoglobin dropped incredibly low and we knew why but it just wasn't coming back up again which was difficult um but interestingly I I carried on exercising throughout I reduced the intensity but I didn't stop and so when I got my hemoglobin back I hit the ground running again back where I was I didn't lose any fitness which I was so happy about but um the mountains of just yeah I just I suppose over the years, I just kind of thought, I want to climb that one and I want to climb that one and that one and that one. And I haven't done that. I haven't climbed a mountain for a while, but mostly the last year, nobody's really done anything. Um, so I would like to keep doing that kind of hiking. But I also just love long distance walking as well. So not it doesn't have to be a mountain. Um, I just love being out in the fresh air. How do you keep your energy up for the long walks? Um, what sort of snacks? Food, yeah. Food, especially that kind of uphill walking, it's really important. You eat lots of snacks. Um, now, I know most people on dialysis are on quite tight diet restrictions and also fluid restrictions. I'm just going to put it out there now because there may be people wondering. Because I do my hemodialysis at home and I do um, it many, many more hours than the 12 hours a week that most people do in a hospital. So ma- majority of people doing three times a week are on really tight diet and fluid restrictions, which is really tough. And I've been on them myself. Mentally, they're tough. They make you not kind of interested in food because you can't eat any of the fun stuff or the nice stuff. Um, and, you know, you're always constantly thirsty and always thinking about when you're going to have your next drink. And that is hard. Um, I'm not on any fluid or diet restriction because I do dialysis through the night at home and I do at least six or seven hours a night and I do at least five nights a week so I'm getting closer to 30 40 hours of dialysis a week which is such a lot of treatment it gets me much closer to kind of having functioning kidneys in a way which means I don't have any diet or fluid restriction at all because I can safely remove 
however much fluid I've drunk usually over those seven hours. Um, so that is a big advantage, which is another reason why, you know, people who are not sure about home dialysis, that's one of the huge advantages that it does convey. And that changes your life as far as I'm concerned. Sounds ideal. Yeah. So for the mountains, you know, I was obviously keeping well hydrated. Um, you know, I tend I tend to sometimes drink a little bit of leukazide sport, but not much. I'm more of a fan of just drinking water. And then things like nuts, um, kind of cereal bars, kind of constantly snacking uh, rather than any big meals, because that just weighs you down and then you're digesting it and you're exhausted just digesting. Having a good breakfast, like porridge or whatever, before you set out helps. Um, and yeah, just, just constantly snacking, really. I, I felt that was the, the, the best way for me. And it made a huge difference. You know, you'd be flagging and you'd eat some nuts and about five, 10 minutes later, you'd have a burst of energy. Also dates. I find dates are really good. Um, again, a lot of this stuff is high in potassium. So you've got to be careful in that if you're not on a free diet, be very careful about what you choose to, to eat and snack on. But if you're not on a potassium restriction or anything like that, then dried fruit and nuts, I think are really good. I think people will find that useful. And again, Ask the ask the consultant, ask your doctors. Surely yeah, that absolutely they'll be able to give you advice personalised to you. Something I read in your story that I found really interesting, intriguing, on the long walk topic was you did ninety miles of Thames path in five days, but you went home each night to dialyse. How did that <laughs> yeah. work in terms of keeping to the route or moving on with the route and keeping at the same point and making sure you'd covered it all? Did you get picked up in the evening? Uh, so no. Uh... Yes, but not picked up. So um, where I live in the middle of England, um, in Warwickshire, um, for people who may not know, the River Thames, obviously we know the River Thames in London is the massive river. The source of the River Thames, where it comes out of the ground, is actually up in, it's in the Cotswolds. So it's a long way from London. And um, there is a known and, and regularly walked route, which is the Thames Path where you can walk from the source of the Thames all the way, follow the whole river all the way to London and then right down to the Thames estuary. Now, off the top of my head, I believe, because we did half, the full length of it is 180 miles. Um, and, and a lot of people will do that in a sort of two-week period. Um, so they'll walk the whole thing. And they will either go along the route camping or they'll stop off at bed and breakfast or little hotels all the way along the way. And it is a known route, so there are lots of places you can go and stay. So for me... Um, I do my dialysis overnight, which is fine. Um, but I, I also, to be well enough and energized enough and, and, you know, eating and drinking freely, I do really need to do it five nights a week. If I, I can absolutely, and I often do reduce it to less nights a week because I'm busy. I want to be elsewhere. I can't be bothered to dialyze or whatever. So, you know, I, I will cut down to four nights a week. Very occasionally I'll go to every other night. So only, you know, three to four nights a week. I won't go less than that. It's an absolute rule of mine. I never go more than one night off my machine because I will not put my body through that unless there's some kind of emergency or something. Um, so I did, my mum and I decided that we wanted to do the Thames walk because we thought it sounded great and we wanted a bit of a challenge and it was, she was on her summer holidays from, she's a teacher. Um, but I did, I was really busy at work and also with skydive training and everything was going on. We didn't really have a lot of time to set aside. So we basically had, um, a Monday to Friday period of time and we wanted to do the Thames walk so we thought well let's see how much of it we can do in five days um, and also we had the compl complication that I also need to be home every night to do dialysis because otherwise I wouldn't really feel up to maybe doing as much walking um, so because of where I live I am within reach of the Thames at various points as it travels through the, the counties but obviously the drive the drive distance 
changes every day. Yeah. So we worked out quite a complicated itinerary where we had two cars. It was not very good for the environment, I have to say, so uh, because we were driving in two cars. But what we would do is set off really early in the morning, we would get up from my house. I'd, do, I'd get off my dialysis. We would get in the two cars, drive to the end point of that day's chunk of distance. Um, the first day we did 20 miles. That was really ambitious and wasn't probably sustainable to do 20 miles, 20 miles, 20 miles, 20 miles. It was a bit long. Um, so so we, we didn't, the second day we did 17 and the third day we did 15. And after that, we felt 15 was a good amount to sort of do each day. Um, so we took a car to the end point. Then we both got in the other car and went up to the start point. Then we walked from there to where we'd left the first car, picked that car up, drove up to the end, picked the other car up, drove home, did dialysis. Next day, we went back to where we'd stopped and did the same every day and did the same and lapped ourselves and covered 90 miles in five days. Very organised. It was quite organised. And I am not an organised person at all, but my mum is. <laughs> and we knew that was the only way that feasibly we could do it. And I cannot recommend it enough. It is stunning. The upper reaches of the Thames before it gets anywhere near anywhere kind of urban or built up is beautiful. And the path is pretty deserted. There are books where you can give you the guide to follow it all the way. It's very flat. It's easy walking. It changes all the time what it looks like. And we did it in August, which is such a good time of year. And I just, it was amazing. And I, I actually, you know, just going on a really, really, really long walk um no mountains no adrenaline no nothing and um having good company and so on I get on really well with my mum and we just chatted and chatted and chatted and then you can have a really nice pub dinner in the evening because you've walked all day and you've earned it <laughs> <laughs> the company must be key on long walks like that absolutely yes it is <laughs> something else that I read in your story that made me go wow which from listening back to these podcasts I noticed that I say wow a lot uh so 2018, you ran the London Marathon and became the first woman on dialysis to do it. How did that feel? Um, did you know? Well, at various points, it felt like the stupidest idea I had ever had. Um, I, I didn't know. We still don't know for sure. There might be a woman out there who ran the London Marathon on dialysis before me. We looked and tried to find out. And I, there are, you know, there, there are certainly a couple of men who've done it. In the world, there is a handful of dialysis patients who have run marathons. Um, and there is also an incredible guy who has done an Ironman triathlon as a dialysis patient, which just blew my mind entirely. Um, so I knew I wasn't like the first ever to attempt something like that. But as far as we know, I'm, I'm the first woman to complete London. Um, anyway, it's whether or not I am. It, I have no idea what possessed me. No, I do know what possessed me to do it. I'm not a runner. I am into fitness and training and sport, but I've never been a serious runner. I don't run regularly for fitness. And, and actually, I struggle to run longer distances because I get a bit bored and I need to, then I get distracted and then I sort of stop running. Um, so I, my dad, who is also not a runner, but um, the year before, so 2017, out of the blue, without really telling any of us, he entered the marathon, the London Marathon, um, to run it for our the Kidney Patients Association at Guy's Hospital, who had obviously helped us out over the years and, and, you know, he wanted to support. He very casually just dropped it into conversation with us one day and said, oh, I've got a place to run the London Marathon. And he's, you know, he's he hasn't run things like that before. <laughs> and um, he, he is in his early 70s as well. <laughs> so I was so blown away by my dad, who then went and duly ran the marathon. He did all his training. It was incredible. We all went and supported him and it was amazing. I then kind of in my head thought, well, actually, 
if he can do it, I can do it. And it's my 20 years on dialysis coming up and that's worth celebrating. So I just set it as a challenge essentially to see if I could. And then I committed to fundraise because that always helps to keep you focused on your commitment. And then I, through amazing, incredible, generous support from people, I raised um, over £24,000 for Kidney Care UK and Kidney Research UK. That's amazing, well done. But at which point I was like, oh my gosh, I have to now go run the marathon because that's a lot of money. <laughs> Committed and, now. Um, yeah, and um, nobody really had any good advice for me in terms of doing it on dialysis because it's not really a known thing. So there was no real training advice. There was nobody knew what to do about things like keeping hydrated and not dehydrating and getting a high potassium. My doctor, who is amazing, literally just said, well, you know, do your training and take it step by step and work it out and see how you feel. And we'll keep an eye on you. So I duly did that and didn't really know what I was doing, but made it up as I went along and just trusted what I felt was right. Um, the, the difficult thing was it was the year where we had the beast from the east, which was that insane weather where it was never got above zero for weeks on end. And I was training in that weather on my own in the countryside, no running buddies. It was grim. So many days I did not want to leave the house, never mind go running. And um, I remember I did my last long run when I didn't even get anywhere near what I was supposed to do, which was, I think, 21 miles for my last long run. But it was about minus 10 and blowing a gale. So I did about 17 and then kind of went like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> so I hadn't quite finished the training as I was supposed to on the day. But then on the day, it hit us with the 25 degrees. Like, it felt like the Mediterranean. So nobody was prepared for that. No one had trained in heat. We had been training in snow literally a week before. Um, and and it was quite, uh, it was actually quite worrying because I set off and I was always going to be very slow anyway because all I wanted to do was get around. And I was noticing people, clearly really experienced runners who were sitting on the roadside not able to carry on and getting dehydrated. The ambulance people were coming out to people and I was like, oh my gosh, I just, all I want to do is finish. So I just slowed right down. I have no shame that I walked sections in the middle. Um, and then I, but I know that my last mile was my fastest mile. <laughs> my <laughs> Sprint finish. Yeah, yeah, literally. I was so desperate to get back, get through. And then I had an amazing support crew of friends and family. Quite a few of the kidney community friends came out. And um, without a doubt, they got me around. Um, just seeing happy, smiling faces at various points. Um, and it was the most phenomenal experience. Nothing like it. I mean, the crowd and the atmosphere on the streets of London on Marathon Day is just amazing. I will never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I did not get the running bug. I don't like running at all. I'm not addicted. My friend, who also ran it the same year, who's a fantastic, really good runner, she got hooked on running and went on to do more marathons and half marathons and things. And I literally was like, right, I'm never running anything again, ever. Um, so it's just one of those random things. <laughs> <laughs> You've ticked it off now. Yeah basically yeah so what did your training involve for the marathon um I, I mean I asked a few people who had run marathons and who are and actually I was lucky uh, another kidney patient introduced me to a friend of his who was a running coach who gave me some great advice but the biggest thing I did which I still do now and I I, I locally found um a guy called Jamie Constable who is now a really good friend who's a PT and because the, the running coach guy had said, get your strength up, do weight training, do strength training, build your body, because marathons aren't just about running, it's also about endurance and just coping and the strength. So I started training with Jamie, um, doing weight training um, in the gym as well, which I hadn't really ever done before properly. 
So that plus the advice from the running coach, which is literally have a plan and stick to it. And the plan really does start at like really quite short little runs. And you think, oh, I can't even run a mile. How am I ever going to run 26? It is a bit like that, but it, it is amazing what your body adapts to. So I wouldn't say I was really brilliantly consistent with my training. Um, I, I'm very busy with work as well. So and my dialysis and everything else I was trying to fit in. So it wasn't like I had all this time available to me to do training. I had to be disciplined. Um, it was winter, so that limited, you know, daylight and that sort of thing. I had some quite um, quite dark, very cold, horrible late evening runs. And around where I live, it's fine to run in the dark, but I am out in the countryside and it's very dark. And um, that, you know, that wasn't great. But then as spring kind of crept up through April, it was still really cold. But I got chased by a cow once, which was quite <laughs> funny. I mean, I had a few little adventures on my running training. And, you know, I was doing work trips and I was so I was in Cardiff for work one day. So I took my trainers and I did a run in Cardiff and that was around the bay and that was beautiful. So I tried to stick to the plan and there are plans on the internet or there are books you can buy. Um, it's actually not rocket science. It's start, you know, start with a little bit and build up all the time. And, you know, you can, you can look for beginner's plans where if you're not, you know, if you're a first newbie to marathon running, go for a beginner's plan and it'll get you know you might be aiming for whatever time you're aiming for it doesn't really matter but just follow the plan and and I promise that that works and and it did work for me um the strength training I think really did make the difference though and I hadn't really thought about that I thought you just go and you run and that's it yeah um, but for endurance running you need overall fitness um and that was that was really great advice and that that has been something I've stuck with since then and I really I really need my kind of weight training and gym training now I wouldn't want to do without it my body is completely different to how it was a couple of years ago it's transformed um and so it all kind of came hand in hand I guess just from setting out to, to do the marathon training program did you have to adapt your dialysis for it or prepare through dialysis in a different way um well we didn't really know so as I said before, I, trusting my body and trusting what my body says to me is really important with all this stuff. Um, and I knew that because I do so much dialysis, but my dialysis is also very gentle because I'm doing it over much, much longer than the typical four hours. So I don't get the big fluctuations in blood pressure that people experience. I don't get that exhaustion following my treatment because the treatment's so much gentler. So really I can go on dialysis in the evening feeling fine because I'm still quite well dialyzed from the day before or the night before. And I get off it in the morning feeling fine because the treatment's been really gentle. Um, so I knew that my body was sort of okay to, to do the training, well, as far as I knew it was, um, the main thing was fluid balance and hydration. And obviously, because you're removing fluid on dialysis, what I didn't want to do is take all the fluid off and go right down to my dry weight, which is all the fluid taken off, um, and then have low blood pressure and then set off running. So I actually adapted a little bit. And as my runs got longer, and certainly on the day of the marathon, I made sure that I came off dialysis what we call heavy so quite a lot over my dry weight to allow that I could sweat a bit and lose some fluid and not hit rock bottom of blood pressure in my boots which sometimes does happen to me so I just learned over time and through practicing what I needed um and on the day it being 25 degrees and really hot I drank more than I maybe would have expected but I just literally sipped water and alternated a little bit with LucasAid Sport the whole way around I didn't use any gels or any kind of a weird sort of food supplementy things or anything because I was a bit worried about potassium especially if I was dehydrated so actually again I stuck to natural snacky stuff just normal food essentially yeah um 
and plenty of fluid. And and the best thing ever, I was really proud of this because I ran the marathon on a Sunday. I didn't do dialysis on the Sunday night because I was I didn't want to, and I was like, I'll be fine. And I stayed in London, so I wasn't actually at home with my machine anyway. And then on the Monday morning, I went up to Guy's Hospital, who I'm still under the care of, and got my bloods done just to see. And my bloods were perfect. Everything was perfect. So it didn't upset my body at all, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Ran the marathon on Sunday, perfect bloods on Monday. I know, I was like, to do Craig David. Fine. Someone yeah. told Craig David to write a new song. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Not that this makes much of a difference because what you've done was incredible anyway, but what time did you actually do it in? <laughs> so I did running time was six hours and 20 i think um which was so slow like literally probably i was in the final third of runners um and yeah okay i would say you know i I would have loved to have said oh i did the marathon in five hours because why wouldn't you but actually i was really proud of just finishing because of the weather on the day um so yeah very slow very steady and that's the point i think like if you want to set out and do something do it the way you want to do it like don't worry about other people who are marching off ahead at high speed or going to do a sub three hour because they're literally superhuman I wasn't bothered about any of that um I think you know if I felt like I wanted to give a marathon another go I would like to do it faster but only faster than what I did before I wouldn't set out to beat someone else's time because it's just not realistic my running is I'm a terrible runner my technique is not good um you know my feet don't do the right things I think someone who you know a gate someone who analyzed my gait would probably be literally don't ever run again you're going to break yourself so I know I'm not on the most efficient runner either but that wasn't really the point we had a question in on on Twitter about marathon running from Scott who was on the last podcast he said I did the London 2012 marathon whilst on dialysis but I'd only been on for around a year at that point how did you find it and how was recovery we've sort of covered how you found it how was the recovery for you do you know what it was absolutely fine I mean the bloodst evidence bloods were perfect um and then I did go home and do my normal dialysis that night on the Monday night so I made sure I was well dialyzed um and I think the Tuesday because obviously the delayed onset of muscle soreness is often like two days later I could feel it um so I I think I could feel it on my on the stairs on my legs um but not really worse than like a hard leg workout um, which I was really surprised that I thought it, I thought I was going to be in agony, but I do actually think that my dialysis would have removed quite a lot of lactic acid buildup, which causes a lot of the pain. So actually, perhaps the dialysis helped. Um, and I had been I had seen a physio a couple of times during my training. I got I got really tight calves at one point, and I had acupuncture, which was just amazing, and dealt with it straight away. So I had already planned to go and see him for like a sports massage a few days later, just kind of see what my body was actually doing um uh, but no and I think that's where the strength training came in because my muscles were genuinely strong and fit so the running yeah running is different to 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 lifting obviously but overall my body was quite well prepared um and my dialysis is really good um doing the dialysis in the way I do you know eased a lot of that stress probably that that I could have been putting myself through because my heart is strong my blood pressure is good my body is strong and well um and so actually I was all right, which probably means I didn't try hard enough. I should have run it faster. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'd have had more. <laughs> Maddie, it's been so good to talk to you today and tell your story, share your experiences of sport, your determination, 
really is inspirational and it's summed up by a comment that Tara sent on Instagram saying, tell Maddie she's my hero. <laughs> she's a proper runner, I tell you. She's got she's got much more mad ideas than I have. But thank you. <laughs> <laughs> One more question before we go. Uh, it's a question that I ask everyone who comes on. We'll slightly adapt it for you. What's one piece of advice you give to someone facing dialysis for a sustained period of time? Um, it is not the end of the world, but you've got to make it work for you. And that looks different for everybody. Yeah, spot on. I think no, every the personalised approach, individual approach, everyone is different. What works for you works. Thank you, Maddie, for coming on. It's been really good to talk to you today. I'm sure people will learn from it as I have. I came in with not much knowledge of dialysis with not doing it, but I'm confident in understanding more and understanding people who've been through that themselves and people who will go through it in the future or might meet and I might talk to on here. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends about it. We'd love to get more people involved. We'd love to get more people listening. And if you've got a story to tell, you'd like to come on, you can get in touch via social media, which we mentioned earlier. But if you missed that or you can't remember that, Facebook and Instagram are at Transplants Take On Sport Pod. Twitter is at TTOS Pod. Or you can email Transplants Take On Sport at gmail.com. Uh, a thank you to the nickname on the website just says Joe Ob. So thank you very much for using the ACAST supporter feature that's mentioned at the start of each podcast. I don't know if. It's just it's not me speaking. It's just, it sounds like an advert, but it, it really does help to keep the podcast going. Uh, Joe donated ten pounds to help this continue, help this grow and improve. So thank you so much for that. If anyone else would like to, there's a link in the show notes, and it's mentioned at the start of the podcast by somebody from Acast. Uh, I said it last week. If you'd like to follow me on social media with the lockdown easing, hopefully this summer and the roadmap out of it. I'm looking forward to getting back to doing my magic when I can at weddings, events, parties, variety shows, any sort of show you've got going on. So you can follow me if you want to too. I'm on Twitter at LewisDaniels25, Instagram at Lewis underscore Daniels25, and Facebook at LewisDanielsMagic. Another thing, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, I know this has been a long episode, please do give it five stars on there. It means a huge amount to me because it helps the podcast grow and get shown to more people on there. More people find it. Listen, hopefully we can help more people because that really is what we're trying to do. Summed up by Joe, actually, who said, thanks for sharing your stories. It's great to hear the experiences from people who are before you. It makes what's ahead seem a little more normal. And that's exactly why I set this up. This is something I would wanted to listen to when I was going through kidney failure and building up to a transplant to hear stories of these inspirational people who've got on with playing sport again, got back to normal-ish, normal life, and are doing what they can to to get back to what they love whether that's running cricket hockey football track and field at the transplant games anything skydiving thanks again to my guest today maddie warren it's been a pleasure to talk to you you really are the queen of dialysis (laughs) well thank you very much for having me it's been great if you want to go and check out maddie on social media is that at queen of dialysis yeah that's right there we go thank you twitter and instagram Thank you very much for listening. I've been Lewis Daniels, and you've been listening to Transpat's Take on Sport. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.